This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hey, it's Evan Shinners. You may call me WTF Bach. You may call me Evan. I masquerade as both. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach, to lead your ears, to steer your mind to certain features of this unfathomably deep music. You'll come away having heard Bach's music with little to no introduction, and later with a mind full of information of what to listen for. I'm going to toss you into the ocean, but just before you drown, I'll save you and teach you how to swim, and then toss you in again. And speaking of oceans, it was Beethoven who said, Nicht Bach, aber ein Meer. It means not a brook, but an ocean, because Bach, the German word Bach, means brook, a small stream of water. Nicht Bach, aber ein Meer, not a brook, but an ocean. But I do like both Bach the ocean, but also Bach the brook. Sometimes he can be nothing more than just one drop of water at a time in his humble, never-ending stream. Okay, we're here at the fourth fugue in the Art of Fugue, and if you've been with me for all the previous podcasts, you're beginning to understand that this little cell, this Art of Fugue subject, is the DNA for 14 fugues, and it gets a little more action-packed with every fugue. And we're slowly discovering Bach by looking at how he took one cell of music and created an entire work which spans every conceivable emotion and every possible permutation of this cell. And how such a simple shape could be used to generate this rich music in 14 different fugues and then some is truly one of the miracles of all music. This is the art of fugue. This is Die Kunst der Fuge. Now that little sample there is actually my voice singing Lou and then me playing that sample to the notes of the fourth fugue. The fourth fugue is the finale of a quartet of fugues, which we are to call simple fugues. But this simplicity has nothing to do with the complexity of the music, because actually the fugues are quite chromatic, quite complex already, and really how simple can a fugue be? It's not a waltz. simple fugue refers to the fact that there is one subject as opposed to two or three or even four, and none of the fugal techniques are being applied. Now these fugal techniques are generally thought of to be inversion, stretto, diminution, augmentation. And yes, there are very loyal listeners now saying, but wasn't fugue three inverted? Yes, you're right. Fugue three, and as we'll soon see fugue four, these are fugues where the subject is an inversion of the subject in previous fugues. But since in three and four, we only get inverted subjects, that is, every entrance of the fugue is inverted, well, who's inverted now, me or you? The inversion of which I speak is one where you have to see both the subject right side up and upside down in the same fugue in order to tell which one is inverted. You know, if you're walking down the street and whap, this piece of paper smacks you in the face and it's fugue four from the art of fugue. Well, without the context of the other fugues, you have no reference to show which one is the inverted subject. For all you know, if you saw another piece of trash, which is the first fugue, you might begin to think, well, the first fugue is the inversion. Wouldn't that be a lovely day when the trash floating around as fugues from the Art of Fugue? What is this? WTF. This is WTF Bach. This, this is, is the WTF, WTF Bach, Bach podcast. podcast. Duh.
I just have to thank everyone for their feedback, and I got my first question from a listener in Brazil. So shout out to Brazil. The question was, how old were you when you started music, and when did you start liking Bach? So thanks for the question. Well, I started studying the piano at nine, which is a bit later than, say, most professional musicians these days, but I should mention that it was also at age nine or ten or even eleven when Bach started his lessons with his children, just to give some context here. But when did I start liking Bach? Well, maybe that was before I even started playing piano. I used to sit in front of the TV watching Fantasia, the first Disney film, with my sister, and that first part, which is Bach to abstract animation, just used to crack us up. I recall bursting out laughing to this part here where the pedal line is played like this. And my sister and I just used to think that was the most hilarious thing. And we just used to watch this part over and over again. This is the piece that begins like this. I got the score. I don't know who found this score in my family, but somehow they got me the Buzzoni arrangement of the same piece. And I, I mean, this is eerie today for me to look at this piece of sheet music because I still have it. I crossed out the name Buzzoni everywhere it was printed, completely blacked it out all over. And near this black smudge, I wrote Shinners above it in all capitals. So it read Bach hyphen Shinners. And I wrote the note names above each note. A, G, A, G, F, E, D, C sharp, D, A, G, A, E, F, C sharp, D, a, G, A, G, F, E, D, C sharp, D. And then here, this low D. I miscounted the ledger lines and wrote F. And then I tried to write in a few more note names, but this chord was simply too thick. It had too many ledger lines for my nine-year-old brain. So to me, even back then, I was simply content to play over and over again. Speaking of organ music, let's hear one of my absolute favorite musicians who ever lived play the fourth counterpoint from the Art of Fugue.
Okay, that is Helmut Walcha, W-A-L-C-H-A, on the organ. He's playing in the 50s. Now, Helmut Walcha was one of the most fascinating people who ever lived. He was a blind organist who lived in Leipzig. Okay, let me repeat that. He was a blind organist who lived in Leipzig. Now, Bach died in Leipzig when he was blind, and Helmut Walcha was a blind organist who lived in Leipzig. I mean, talk about Tukulus. This guy was the real deal. He went blind when he was 18 years old, I believe, because of smallpox, and he learned music from then on out by having a teacher, a very extremely patient teacher who probably should be declared a saint, who fed him orally this music, Bach's highly complex music line by line in a call and response type setting, like the great Indian classical musicians. The teacher would say, okay, the soprano goes, and then Helmut would repeat. And in this way, he was able to accomplish a staggering feat. He learned the entire Bach repertoire, some 36 hours of music, all the harpsichord music, all the organ music from memory, obviously from memory, and recorded all of it on harpsichord, on organ. I mean, talk about amazing things people did with their lives. When I refer to the entrances of the first two voices in a fugue, I've been calling them either the leader and the follower, the question and the answer, or even the call and response. But there are two official Latin terms that you would be given in a counterpoint class. They're called the dux, D-U-X, and the comes, C-O-M-E-S. And dux is Latin for leader, so that is a direct translation. But instead of comes meaning follower, comes actually means companion or fellow traveler. And I like fellow traveler a lot because of the imagery. You have this vast fugal landscape, and you have your dukes, your brave dukes headed out on the path, and then you have your comes. And the comes isn't necessarily following the dukes, but he's traveling with the dukes. Now, I mentioned the dukes and the comes because you may recall the third fugue started like this. That's the dukes, and the comes was like this. And now the opening of the fourth fugue. This is the dukes. And this is the comes. So that is the dukes of the third fugue is now all of a sudden the comes of the fourth fugue, and the dukes of the fourth fugue was the comas of the third fugue. So this is Bach saying, look, this subject is so flexible that the dukes may become the comes, and the comes may become the dukes. We can turn it upside down. It can be both leader or fellow traveler. And this says a lot about the ingenuity of this shape. Now, the outstanding feature in the fourth fugue, I believe, is this cuckoo material that we have. Those are two voices sort of cuckooing one after the other. Coo, 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 coo. I hear you, I hear you too. And if we think back on our first fugue, we have something similar in the episodes that's happening with two voices again. We have. And this is sort of the same idea, but now in our fourth fugue, the cuckoos are happening twice as slow. So this is as if Bach is telling us this same idea can be slowed down twice as much. And in fact, this cuckoo 
idea is so prevalent that if I take out every single note from the fugue except the subject and the cuckoo motive, we'll get this. This is the entire fugue played with only the subjects and the cuckoo. the alto entering, that's the comez. And this isn't quite the cuckoo, it goes upward. Here's the tenor. And there's our first real cuckoo with the bass entrance. Can you hear the cuckoo up top? Now the cuckoos come. cuckoos are in the bass and here we have a soprano entrance and an outro entrance you hear the cuckoos beginning to become more tenor entrance bass entrance an interesting section here because we have these short ones and these extra long ones and then nothing and now they're back entrance in the bass here tenor here. And this, this is the inversion of the cuckoo. It's an ascending sixth instead of a descending third. Now this is really interesting here. There's nothing. No cuckoo. I'm still counting my way through this. I'm still going to play. No cuckoo. No theme. Slowly they come back. And then we have a big line of them. Just a cuckoo here and there. Now the communication, and now this is interesting here. We appear to have two themes at once, overlapping. And the double cuckoo. And then two themes again at once in the right hand now. And more cuckoos. sort of ascending cuckoos we heard at the beginning, now at the end.
tenor entrance. And an alto entrance. And that's our final entrance. No cuckoos at the end. Just this lovely cadence with all the voices now to hear the chord. Okay, that is the entire fugue there, played with just the theme and this cuckoo counter motif. Although I would like to stop saying cuckoo, or else I'm going to go cuckoo. Okay, there are two concepts I want to point out there. The first, we heard it toward the end, where I said there were two themes overlapping. We could think about this as our first stretto in the art of fugue. A stretto is this. One voice starts saying something, but before he can finish saying one something, voice another starts voice saying overlaps something. it. But before he can finish saying something, another voice overlaps it. Okay, that was me trying to stretto my own voice with what I had already said. It seems a little psychotic, so let's do it in musical terms. In bar 107 of this fugue, we have this in the left hand. That's the left hand. And if I were to isolate the voices, the tenor has this, which is the dukes of the theme, of the fugue. And the bass is this. That little rhythmic hiccup there is because they are displaced just by one quarter note. So they come together like this. And right when they come together, when that happens, you have our double motif. I'll call it a yoo-hoo motive this time. Yoo-hoo. And then, soprano and the alto now. So isolating them, we have in the alto and this rhythmically altered and the soprano. Now this could be thought of as the first stretto in the Art of Fugue, but it is interesting that they finish at the same time because normally say if one voice is following the other, strettoing it at one beat, it would also finish one beat after. But Bach here just adjusts the tail of the following voice so that they finish at the same time so you almost can't even hear the stretto because I think he's just hinting at the stretto because he's about to say, hey, get ready. You know this shape, this artifugue shape, I'm gonna stretto this. I'm gonna stretto this shape like a shape has never been strettoed. And that fugue, that stretto fugue is up next. That's fugue number five. Now the other thing, the second thing I wanted to pull your attention toward is what I consider an advanced concept in Bach. I believe even most people who play Bach and even who play a lot of Bach, if you ask them about this concept, it's probably unfamiliar. And that is the concept of what Bach does within the golden sections at various points in his career. Okay. What? A golden what? what? Okay, right. A golden section, a golden number, a golden ratio. What is this? Well, this is an amazing concept in art, in nature, in music, in architecture. It stems from mathematics, and in particular, the Fibonacci series of numbers. Now, before you have traumatic flashbacks about learning these numbers when you were a child, suffice it to say, this is just a very simple way of growing something. And this is perhaps why we see this golden ratio, this golden number in nature. You have the number one, and you add it to itself. 
So you get two. Now you have the numbers one and two and you add those and you have three. Now you have three and two and you add those five, you add three and five, eight, you add eight and five, 13, you add eight and 13, 21, you add 13 and 21. Exactly. What you're generating here is the Fibonacci sequence. This golden ratio is the ratio of any of the two consecutive numbers. So what you do is you divide two of the numbers next to each other in the sequence and the result approaches this irrational number called the Fibonacci number or the golden number. Let's try it. Let's take two and three. So two into three is 0.66666 forever, which is not all that close. But this two and this three do occur very early on in this Fibonacci sequence. So let's try five and eight is 0.625. Well, that's getting closer. Let's try 13 and 21. Well, that's 0.61904 blah, blah, blah. Hmm, how about 81 and 144, also two consecutive Fibonacci numbers. That's 0 0.61805 something, something, something. Okay, there we go, 0 0.6180. Okay, how about even further down the line? Take it from me that 2,584 and 4,181 are two consecutive numbers in this sequence, and you divide 2,584 into 4,181, and you get 0.61803, again, 0.6180. So in short, that is the golden number, 0.618. Or if we want to think of it in terms of percentages, 61.8% or almost 62%. Its connection to art and music and architecture is fascinating. Da Vinci, for example, painted the smile of the Mona Lisa in the golden section of the golden section of the painting. How about in architecture? Well, if you take two numbers in the sequence, like 13 and 21, and you build a rectangle with one side 13 units and the other side 21 units, you have a golden rectangle. And you see that all over ancient Greek architecture. Even look at your fingers. It's not too far off to say that the smallest joint of one of your fingers is about 62% the length of the middle joint to the end. The middle joint to the end of the finger is about 62% the length of the entire finger. But we have to get back to Bach and music. And suffice it to say that the golden section of a piece is almost 62% of the way through the piece, 61.8% of the way through the piece to be precise. So how do you calculate that? Well, in a piece of music that's 100 measures long, the golden section is just before bar 62. You multiply the measures in a piece by the golden number 0.618, and there you have it, your golden section. Finally, back to this advanced concept I'm slowly introducing to you. Bach is keenly aware of the golden sections in his works. Now, is it that he had a calculator or that his instinct was so good that he knew naturally just where this juicy, natural, beautiful, irrational number lay? I honestly don't know. I have no idea what calculators were like in the 1700s. I don't know what books Bach could have read to learn about the golden ratio, but there you have it. In many, many, many compositions, especially the more didactic and theoretical ones, you see Bach exactly, exactly 61.8% of the way through the piece doing something very dramatic. And this is the big concept here, that in Bach's early years, in the golden section, he's often cramming things in, a stretto in all four voices right at 61.8%, or let's say an inverted canon or whatever it may be, but it's something sort of wizardly that's happening at 61.8%. But in his later years, he's often taking things away from the golden section. And this is what I find magnificent. Because Bach's music is so perfect, and he leaves so few clues as to how the compositions originated or to what inspired him, we have almost no sketches, early drafts, corrections, letters, that finally to latch onto something and say, aha, there, 
This is different. I see this difference between two sides of his career. We see Bach in 1722 cramming all the tricks into the golden section, and then 25 years later saying, hmm, well, let's take everything away, and that is truly something beautiful to see. It's not enough to know that a work of Bach's is later in his life, but what makes it later, what is stylistically late about it, that's where the true study begins. And so going back to fugue number four, when I played the fugue just made up of the yuhu motif and the subject, precisely where nothing appeared, there was just that silence. That was precisely the golden section, and Bach knew this. He carved out the space right there to have just free counterpoint. This is right in the middle of the golden section. No theme, no motif, just unstable free counterpoint until... You see, and then he slowly starts bringing everything back in. Then finally there was the section closer to the beginning where I mentioned that we had these sort of strange cuckoos. We had the ones that were extra long, and the ones that were twice as short. Well, that brief period and where there was nothing, that is 61.8% up to the point where again, there's nothing later on in the composition, which is to say that that is 61.8% of the way up to 61%. 0.8% of the way through the composition. And this is how Bach is structuring this composition, putting this great nothingness right at the golden section and then at the golden section of the golden section. Blow your mind. You know what this all is, right? This falling, this stuff. Well, does this sound familiar? That's right. It's that's the tale of the theme of the Art of Fugue. And he combines it with the cuckoo motive. Just like this, just on top of the top voice and on bottom of the bottom voice. top voice plays exactly what the bottom voice will play first. And again, the cuckoo is on top of the top and on bottom of the bottom, and that's how you memorize Bach. You think about something like that, you note the construction is like that, and you learn it like that. That is really what's such a miracle about Bach, is that it's so simple. It's really so simple in the end. Well, so was it instinct or calculation? Because certain things seem so unbelievable that a composition could unfold so naturally and beautiful, and yet have at its core a purely mathematical formula, the golden section of the golden section. So what to think? Well, Bach did have instincts. As we see this golden number often found in nature, in the petals of a flower or the spiral of a seashell, we often find it in Bach. 
naturally, by pure instinct. But secondly, Bach also could calculate, and this work, the Artifuge, was to be a theoretical paper entered into the Misler Society of Musical Sciences, which Bach joined in 1747, which to me seems like a group of composers tossing back and forth compositions which tested out the limits of mathematics and music. And even so, long before that, long before Bach was in this society, his works reflected careful attention to proportions and to the golden ratio. And it is a certainty that Bach cared more about glorifying God than he did numbers. And his way of glorifying God was writing beautiful music. So no mathematical formula was ever going to usurp the beauty that glorified God. But there you have it. This work, this artifuge is filled with calculation and theory. Well, at least we've reached now the end of the beginning, four so-called simple fugues, two with the subject right side up, two with the subject upside down, and little to no fugal techniques inserted within this quartet. And now we await the fifth fugue, which is the first of three stratofugues. So thanks for listening. I'll have to do a bonus episode giving a brief summary of the first four fugues and going a little deeper into them. But the next full episode, you can expect to be blown away with inversion, canon, and every possible strato you could wish for. So here to conclude is the fourth fugue, played by me, sampling my own voice. And I have two voices in one speaker and two in the other so that you could really get inside the guts of this composition. Thanks very much.
great day to be listening to WTF Bach. To listen to the music referenced in this episode, check the episode description. We are a brand new podcast and we want to hear from you. Got suggestions? You want a specific piece of Bach analyzed by Evan just for you? You can write to us. You want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach podcast. Bach at WTFBach.com. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTFBach. Find the links in the episode description. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening.